supposed to start then, but it's okay. Um, I don't even know what time it is. Does anyone have the time? Look at that. It was perfect timing then. Well done. Thank you, Dan, for accidentally doing that. Um, I hope everyone is having a good Sunday. Um, let's see. Announcements. Goodness, we haven't done this normally in a while now. But, okay, announcements. Every Tuesday at 11, ladies' Bible study for those who are interested. Um, that is continuing. I don't... Does this defer? No. Yeah, so this week will be another one. It's every Tuesday except for the first Tuesday of the month. Our men's group, for those who are interested in men's group. Aspen, actually, you could come out to this too. Um, men as in, you know... I call it the men's group, but it's really the men slash boy group. Because I don't really... I don't have an age bracket. I don't. So if you're interested in coming out, Jeff and, and Aspen, come on out to it. It's, um, we're doing the spiritual disciplines right now. So fasting and praying and things like that. We have extra books. I can give them to you at the end if you want to be interested in reading it. We're almost done that book, but it doesn't matter. Just read the chapter and talk. That's what it is. It's fun. We have a good time. We have a, we have a good group of guys, don't we? we do. Thank you. <laughs> we basically make fun of each other the whole time. Especially the pastors. Um, it's, it's hilarious. Uh, let's see. Besides that, there's really not much that we have in, else going on. Um, we just had our business meeting last week. That went well. We trapped everyone in here for, the, for it afterwards. And no one, we, we were live, so that worked. Besides that, uh, does anyone, Ellen's usually here to give me any other announcements, but she's not here today because she's feeling ill. I'm sorry to hear this. Um, Heather, did she give you any announcements to give or Dan? Anything? She's just not feeling well. Yeah. Yeah, we'll, we'll pray for Ellen then. Um, you can pray for Mike and Betsy as they're traveling right now as well, uh, which is why Dan is back there on the computer. So this is going to be a real fun day. <laughs> so, <laughs> it'll be fine. It'll be great. It's Sunday fun day. How about that? It's Sunday fun day. Um, I didn't even get in there to put in the call to worship today, Dan, so just keep whatever's back there. Everyone else just ignore what's behind me right now until we get to our, our, our songs. But uh, I'll go to our call to worship. I'm going to be reading from Psalm 110, verses 1 through 7. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in the holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are priests forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you so much for your word, for the warmth of our sanctuary, um, and for the warmth that we have with each other as we gather together in fellowship to rejoice in your great worth. And so, Lord, we ask that you would bless us this day, that you would open up our hearts and our minds to learn more about you, to desire you, and to seek fellowship after you above all else. And Lord, we thank you for all the blessings you have bestowed upon each and every one of us individually, but as well as corporately. And as your son taught us to pray, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. At this point, you may rise as we sing our first hymn, and I need to get it up on... Is it, are these right, Bonnie and Linda? They, they say yes, so I, I trust them implicitly. Um, our first hymn... Dan, you have it? Hold on, one second. There we go. All right, now, real quick. Okay. There we go. Click uh, next um, slide. There you go. Thank you. One piece like a river. <laughs> 
When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot you have. So I forgot to get the lyrics to the next song because it's not in our hymn. I'll be right back. Alright. How great is our God. Oh, yeah. 
Amen. You may be seated. Dan, you're doing great. <laughs> um, all right. So, children folk, we haven't come forward in a long time. So, uh, Hattie Crosby, Azaria, my kids. <laughs> That's not the right book. One second. Oh, no, that is the right book. It is this book. Because we're doing our service normally, I figure we can do our story today. We did the donut? I think, I don't know, I don't remember. We did that one because remember the hat? We talked about that a while ago. I think we did the helmets. I think we did that too, the idols. Oh my. Um, I don't think we did Malachi. No, we did. We did the one. Yeah, we did. Oh, my. Okay. Well, goodness. I should have had you guys come up here and t- t- read to me. I don't think we did this one. Yes, we did. I don't remember that one. Okay, we did that. We'll do, we'll do that one. We'll do P. P for Peter. Hey, Peter. <laughs> Alrighty. You guys ready? Are you excited? No. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> it's not even right. P is for perch, pike, pufferfish, and one of the twelve disciples, Peter. Peter had been fishing all night and had caught nothing, period. Then Jesus popped into his boat and they pushed out to sea. Jesus said, let down your nets. When they pulled in the nets, they had a great pile of fish. Then Jesus said to Peter, follow me. Peter promptly put down his nets and followed him. Jesus picked Peter, and he picked 11 others to be the 12 disciples. They followed him everywhere, even on paths through the prairie. Some nights, they slept under the stars and planets and had rocks for pillows. Peter penned two epistles. In them, Peter praised God for pardoning all of his sin through the precious blood of his master, Jesus. Now we're going to read about Luke, what Luke says. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, Jesus asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out, your, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night long and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats, so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And and so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. All right. So what do you guys think about Peter? Does it make you want to become a fisherman? No. Why not? You don't like fish? I don't. I don't really care for fish. I mean, personally. I'll look at them and they're like, oh, look at them. Do I like tuna? Not really, no. Do you like tuna? Do you like tuna, Zara? You do? Uh, <laughs> All right, so anyway, so P, right? So Peter. In this regard, what did Peter do when he was called by Jesus? Did he say, you know what, Jesus? I don't want to follow you. I want to keep trying to catch fish. Did he do that? No. no. Instead, what did he do? He threw down his nets and he followed Jesus. Why? Because he believes in Jesus. Because Jesus had done something in his life that was miraculous. Something that no one else could have done. I thought Peter wore a red shirt instead of a purple shirt. I don't think that's Peter. I don't know. Uh, maybe it is Peter. Anyway, the point is, though, is that I don't know what color shirt Peter wore because it doesn't tell me uh, the scriptures. So we can guess. We don't need to know what color shirt they wore. It was probably, a, it was probably like a tunic, which was like a whitish color, is my guess. Which was... Cream. That's a good. That's a good color. Cream. It is like my shirt. It's like it was meant to be. So um. Anyway. So the question is, what should we do if, let's say, something happens in our lives that only God could have done? Should we follow God? Yeah. 
Should we ignore God? That's right. And so we should learn from Peter. Well, it might be, not be that you're going to go out and catch a bunch of fish the way that Peter did because God told him to. What you will find is that when you are faithful to God, great things happen in faithfulness. And that's what the story is reminding us of, is that in following God, you can do great things for God's glory. So, do you have any questions about Peter and his story? Do you have any questions in general about anything? That's probably true. But I don't know why he's holding a pen in his ear or pencil or silver. Anyway. Hey, look at that. The next one's questions. So does anyone have any questions today, though? Any other questions in general? Things that have been on your mind recently but you haven't been able to ask? He's, well, if Peter's holding a fish, it's because it's Peter, and Peter was a fisherman. So that's why he's holding a fish. Any, any other questions? No. All right, well, how about we pray? And then you guys can head off with, with, I believe, Robin, I'm guessing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for reminding us about Peter. We thank you so much that we were able to learn from those who came before us, from their experiences with you, and that we too have experiences with you on a daily basis through your Son, Jesus Christ, and through your Spirit, which indwells each of us if we believe. And so, Lord, we ask that you would continue to bless our children, that you would bless us through the stories and from the times of those who came before us, and that we would continue to seek to follow after you just as they were faithful to follow you. We thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. All kiddos, you guys can head on out, and we'll continue on with our sermon today. We won't pl- play our other one. Sorry, Bonnie and Linda. Hey, can we just give a hand to Bonnie and Linda, because they are spectacular having to deal with me all the time. You guys are awesome. All right. So, for those who are remaining in here, which is all of you, if you have your Bibles, you may open them up to Isaiah chapter 27. If you do not have your Bible, I am hopeful it'll be behind me on the screen today. I trust you, Dad. Look at it. He gave me a thumbs up, so we're going to be all right. Um, All right. So, as we continue forward, we're in Isaiah We've gone through the last 26 chapters, and Isaiah chapter 27 is, in a way, he's ending all that stuff that came before. And if we remember, starting with Isaiah 14, he started critiquing the world. He showed that these other powers, the nations, and all that they held as power were nothing in compared with God. That God is far more powerful than anything that this world could possibly offer, whether it be wealth, whether it be the world's vision, whether it be anything like that. And so now Isaiah has come to a conclusion about, you know, this world really doesn't have anything worth powerful in comparison with God. And Isaiah chapter 27 is a conclusion to all, that, all of this. So we'll go ahead and bring up our map. Um, starting next week, really, our map is going to become important again. And so this is the time of Isaiah. This is what's happening in the world of Isaiah. We see Assyria up here, you know, is conquering pretty much everything. And everyone's wondering, okay, Assyria is going to rule the world. And they do for about a few decades. And then Babylon ends up conquering everyone else. And then it keeps on going round and round. Um, So here's Babylon, though. We actually talked about all of these different places, though. All of these places were brought up by Isaiah already. Now, our next map kind of breaks it down a little bit further in the way that Assyria with Nineveh started conquering everybody. And it's, again, when you're, when you're down here in Judah, this small little nation, and you're seeing this great nation of Assyria come down and conquer everyone, it makes you wonder, what should we do? Um, and then you figure the northern kingdom of Israel, as we'll find out soon, gets conquered by them, and they get dispersed. It's a, it's a serious thing to consider. And then our next map will show us Okay, again, Judah is down here. This is where Isaiah is. He is in Jerusalem. And then up here in Israel is the north. And you see Syria and Samaria and all these other, Am and Moab and Edom and these different nations. And again, Isaiah has talked about each and every one of these. And that's why it's good to bring up these maps so we know exactly where these places are. Who are these places um, that Isaiah is talking about? So, today's text. Let's start with the big one that everyone was excited about last week. I know Dan's really excited about this one. 27 verse 1. In that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword. You know what, Dan? I forgot the. Oh, you're recording. He's doing the right thing. I'm not. There we go. All right. Let's start again. In that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan. 
the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and will slay the dragon that is in the sea. As was noted last week, scholars debate over whether verse 1 of chapter 27 belongs to the previous chapter, that is chapter 26, or chapter 27. In either case, we didn't look at it last week, um, so it seems prudent to look at it now. This statement, in that day, again, shows us the day to come when God brings judgment against the wicked as well as blessing for the faithful when he brings his full protection out. In this particular instance, we see how the Lord will utilize his hard, great, and strong sword. This does not need to be a literal sword, but instead recognizes his great power, his great might. Indeed, it may well be understood as hard, great, and strong as it shows it is fully capable of dealing with the fleeing, twisting serpent, the dragon that is in the sea. The power of God is fully capable of handling such a beast. Still, and this is probably what's on everyone's mind, what is this beast? The purely physical description of Leviathan could represent actually either a crocodile or a hippopotamus because they actually considered Leviathan to be this great beast in that way. Most forget just how large crocodiles can get. I don't know if anyone saw that picture recently um, of the crocodile that came out in Florida and it was like, a, you know, a dinosaur. It was like 20 feet long. That's frightening. I don't know. That's why I'm not moving to Florida. Um, while the hippo, while it seems docile, and seems lazy, is actually quite hostile to humans. There's actually a number of people killed every year by hippopotamuses. Um, Yet there is something more than just this, too. Just as the sword doesn't need to be understood literally, so too the serpent can represent something more as well. In ancient times, the sea, as this is the dragon of the sea, was often considered untamable. Indeed, as we saw with the ancient Babylonian flood story, Enuma Elish, When the gods released a flood on humanity, they became afraid of the flood. They weren't able to control it. As such, the Leviathan, which lives in the sea, would also possess such power. It's uncontrollable. It can easily represent the chaotic power, which is uncontrollable. Indeed, throughout the ancient Near East, there was a myth about a god defeating a sea monster. It is found in the Hittite religions, the Assyrian, the Babylonian. and each, they have a god who defeats some sea monster. For the Lord, Israel's god, to defeat the serpent then, would mean that God is more powerful than the sea monster and is much more powerful than the chaos. Others, however, look at the Leviathan as a god. If this is the sense, then the Leviathan can be understood as a false god, perhaps a fallen angel, a demon, who has some power similar to the devil in this world. One criticism of this, however, is that Isaiah has been focused on human moral failures. Thus, to include some demonic element seems strange to me. It is just as likely, then, that the Leviathan can be further imagery of human wickedness. The outcome, however, does not change regardless of the position one takes about who this Leviathan is or what it represents. In the end, God is victorious over the sea monster. Whether that is chaos, a demon, human immorality, or some combination just meant to show all of these evils in the world, in the end, it is God who is the only supreme ruler of the universe and nothing else is. And if God is that powerful, then there's nothing for us to be afraid of. Now this continues on into Isaiah 2 through 6. In that day, another in that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together. Or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. In days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. So at this point, chapter 27 turns into actually a hymn. We notice that it is, it is about a vineyard. This is interesting when compared to chapter 5, which also had a vineyard. That vineyard, however, was broken. It was shattered for producing wild grapes. Immediately we see a difference as this vineyard is not torn asunder In both instances, the vineyard represents his people. Why? Because God keeps it. 
He is the one who nourishes it with water and protects it. Despite the hectic nature of Israel and Judah, we remember how God has always remained with them despite their sinfulness and God's chastisement against them. Out of all the powers which had been over them, only he remains. We see in this instance how God has no judgment against his people. He has already done this. He has brought about chastisement against them and their failings. Now, if any should come against his vineyard, he will protect it. What is interesting, however, is that if those who would seek to harm his vineyard come to him as protector instead, then he will take them in. Indeed, instead of being God's enemies, they would have peace with him. This reminds us that though God had a particular people for a particular purpose of salvation, this salvation was far more encompassing than just one nation. If God is providing for his people and protecting them, then the only natural occurrence is that they would spread out over all the earth. As we just saw, those who were once enemies can have peace with God if they seek his protection. This word seems especially poignant in light of Christ, who brings both Jews and Gentiles together into his protection should they place their faith in him. Indeed, this may even be a concept alluded to in Romans 9 and 10, since those who have faith are true heirs of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. So those who have faith in Christ become heirs to the patriarchs. Now we come to verses 7 through 11. Has he struck them as he struck those who struck them? Or have they been slain as their slayers were slain? Measure by measure, by exile, you contended with them. He removed them with his fierce breath in the day of the east wind. Therefore, by this, the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for. And this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin. When he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones crushed to pieces. No ashram or incense altars will remain standing. For the fortified city is solitary. A habitation deserted and forsaken like the wilderness. There the calf grazes. There it lies down and strips its branches. When its boughs are dry... They are broken. Women come and make a fire of them. For this is a people without discernment. Therefore he who made them will not have compassion on them. He who formed them will show them no favor. So as a side note, you know, I love the prophets because there's things like this that come along and at first I'm like, what are you talking about? Um, does any, like you ever get that sometimes when you're reading the prophets? It's like, what are you saying? Man. Let's have fun. Let's figure it out. All right. So in the previous chapter, we saw how the people of Israel often would contend with God and how that often led to them being chastised by having oppressive powers placed over them. In light of this, some would wonder how Jacob's root could shoot out and cover the earth when God chastises them so. In response to this, God makes the point to look at the other nations. When he brings devastation upon them, There is no remnant. With the people of Israel, however, there always had been. Indeed, this chastisement has brought in the form of exile. Some scholars note that exile here represents every time God allowed another power to reign over his people. Not only the Assyrian exile or the Babylonian exile, which is to come. Despite this, the people still remained. God continued to sustain his people even in the midst of such judgments. You remember the time of the judges. Every time the people sinned, he would send in a nation to conquer them and to oppress them. And then he would send a judge to deliver them when they cried out finally to him. It's that kind of an exile, that separation there that people's sinfulness bring. The purpose of these were not to destroy the people though, but to atone them. They suffered in order that their guilt would be alleviated. When we sin against God, we can expect chastisement. Not for the purpose of destruction, but for the purpose of purification and transformation. When God rebukes, he does so that we would turn to the one who is truly powerful and capable of sustaining us. The things in this world claim to be able to sustain us. The altars we build, the sacrifices we make upon them, the ashram poles, they were erected to worship the goddess Asherah, who was a Baal. 
When the people rebelled against God, they would often go to these places in order to worship these false gods. God is saying he will crush these false beliefs into the dust. And the city is likely the city mentioned in chapter 25. There, the worldly city was described as a power which is against God. Here we find another example of what happens to the city. It is destroyed. Where once there was life, now all that remains are the calves grazing. That is a calf shows it has become destitute. Indeed, the city will be destroyed by God. It is broken down where only the dead branches are left. And this is an interesting comparison, isn't it, with the fruitful vine? Still, the question is, what is the reason for this destruction? Admittedly, we have seen the reason throughout Isaiah. Almost like a detective who adds evidence to the case against the perpetrator. So Isaiah has with this city of the world. Now it is seen that the people have no discernment. No wisdom, no understanding between wrong or right. Despite God being the one who created them, his compassion will not remain forever. Destruction will come against those who willfully ignore him and his salvation. God has created all things, including human beings, who bear his image. To continue to choose self, though, the wisdom of the world, the power of the world, over what God offers, only leads to destruction. Now we come to the final two verses of the chapter. In that day, from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain, and you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown, and those who were lost in the land of Assyria, and those who were driven out to the land of Egypt, will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. So as a conclusion to the passage, once all has been accomplished with the judgment against the nations and powers of the world, the people of God will be gleaned from the Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, which is another way of saying from north to south. Assyria was up here, the Euphrates was up here, Egypt is below. And so from all in between, they're going to be gleaned together. The people will be gleaned, that is, they will be harvested, they will be taken one by one. That they're taken one by one shows the incredible care God has for his people. Not only this, but those who were lost. Those who died in foreign lands. The faithful from north to south, Assyria to Egypt, they'll be brought home. Jerusalem represents God's presence in the world. As such, the people are brought into the presence of God. And they will worship him there. Again, a poignant reminder of God's great salvation. So the main point. The main point of these verses describe the victory of God against the powers of the world. His strength is what fortifies his chosen vineyard. That is his people. And in protecting them shows the world his justice and his mercy. Those who come humbly before him and take hold of his salvation will receive it. Though... They had once been enemies of God. Though the people of God may find his chastisement harsh, we are reminded that compared to judgment, his chastisement is light. Ultimately, the purpose of his chastisement is not to bring his people um, death, but life. So in our modern times, it is clear to see how chaos can swiftly fall upon us. When we look at society, we see it all around. The different political ideologies play out, not only in politics, but in culture and the rest of society as well. It can cause within us a despair knowing that such chaos, so much conflict exists in the world. Indeed, it is a chaos both within us and outside of us. I think that is why today's passage is so important for modern hearers. Whether or not the first verse belongs with this chapter or the previous, it still is a great reminder that God is in control of the chaos. Not only is he in control, but in the end, he is capable of bringing order to the chaos within and around us. He does so with the intent on ending that which would cause us so much harm. So it is with the serpent who is destroyed by the Lord's hand. 
That which would cause us so much anxiety and strife is defeated. It is not defeated by our hands, however. No, it is defeated by the strength of God Almighty coming against it. His sword is able to end the dragon so that it will not rise again. What is the purpose of this? Why should the dragon be destroyed? Is it really so harmful to us? Does the swirling chaos of the world really cause devastation? Some who read this might be a little distraught over the destruction of the beast. What did the beast do to deserve this judgment? I would say it did all that we have been seeing concerning the city of the world. Indeed, what we have seen um, even in this chapter concerning the desolate city which has been destroyed with no inhabitants left. What does Isaiah say about the inhabitants of that city? Why does God destroy them? The answer is in their lack of discernment. Their inability to discern between good and bad, right and wrong. Any people who lack such discernment will by definition fall prey to the world. To the Leviathan. To chaos. Why? Because they will have no concept of what is moral and ethical in their society. By having no concept of it, they are unable to stand against the storms of the world and instead are enveloped by it. By having no firm foundation for their lives, it leads to individuals who are tossed about on the waves. Christ, he had another analogy. The fool who built his house on the sand. When the winds blow and the rains fall, the house is unable to stand. So it is with the individual with no discernment between right and wrong. They end up becoming living contradictions, justifying evils by their own subjective views. The effects of such views end up belonging to the world. Such individuals will seek the powers of the world and seek the strength of the world. They will seek all that Isaiah has been warning us against. We see how it is the case with the people. They had worshipped at the ashram, worshipping at the altars of false gods. These gods who were nothing more than natural elements under God's control, they dared to place above God, dared to subject themselves to the elements. God, however, will not allow his creation to rise above him. He is the foundation for all of reality, not his creation. Without him, there would be no creation to witness, no reality to experience. For those who have been created then to place the world above him is an incredible travesty to his glory. For he is above all these things and he alone is worthy of all honor and glory. Still, when humans seek to subvert God, it is no different than turning the world on its head. But some will say, we do not worship the natural elements in this way anymore. While it is true there are few in our culture who worship at the altar of the Baals, we do have spiritual altars on which we sacrifice. When we seek to define good and bad in our terms, it is no different than those who worship false gods of old. In both cases, that which is false is being honored above the truth. It is a lack of discernment which places our trust in false idols, and at the same time, lack of discernment which leads us to trust in ourselves. In either case, we are placing that which is made by God above the Creator. We are saying we know better than God when we trust in ourselves more than we trust in God. What happens when we reverse the order? The answer is nothing but illusionment, disillusionment, and chaos. In our society, truth is something which is left behind. We have no concept of what is true because each individual decides what is true for reality. At first, this sounds good, doesn't it? Who is to say what is good and right for another person? I suspect we would not want others to decide for us. Yet that is a problem when you really think about it. And deciding for ourselves what is true and good and right, we will automatically come to different definitions. And in coming to different definitions, we encounter chaos. Because if I say something, 
about what I believe is true about reality and that it is different than what you say is true about reality, then who is to say who has the correct view? If we are the only ones who decide these things, then my view is no better than yours and yours is no better than mine and truth is shattered. If, however, there is a creator to the universe and he has made himself known, then he can provide us the foundation for reality for what is good, for what is right, and what is true. Then it will not be you or I who decides what is true, nor would it be something that we define. Instead, truth would be found in the world as we experience this God who created the world. In this way, God cuts off the head of the dragon. That which brings chaos is no more, because if God exists, then there is order, there's meaning, there's purpose to all that we experience. When we come humbly to God and acknowledge his existence, we can then fall under his protection against the world where truth is not able to be grasped. Does this mean that we will always get everything right? No. Is Carissa here? No, she's not. Okay, good. Because she's like, yeah, you don't get anything right. (laughs) We must acknowledge our finiteness and sinfulness. I cannot know everything there is to know about all things. And sin always distorts the truth around me. But our inability to know everything perfectly, even the effects of sin, does not negate our ability to find truth. Especially if God provides that truth to us. Because while we are finite and sinful, God is infinite and without sin and the source of all truth. So it is. There are moments of struggle and frustration because of our inabilities and because of sinfulness. There are moments of chastisement under our Heavenly Father's care. Does this mean that he does not love us? Certainly not. Instead, it means he loves us greatly. For God chastises those whom he loves. In this existence, he has given us freedom of will, which means love is possible, but also hate. It also means that we have the capacity to follow truth, but also the capacity to follow what is false. In his chastisement, he brings us back to the truth, to the reality of his existence and the reality that he is the one on whom all of reality rests, not us. It allows us to recognize that some pain is worth experiencing if it leads us to a greater truth and the one who is truth itself, which is God. While the moments of chastisement may seem arbitrary or without purpose, in the end, it always has a purpose. Moments of seeming chaos to us is ordered by God in his mercy and his grace. Again, we see the blessings of the protection of God. Whereas without God, there is only chaos. With God, we have a foundation for all of reality which includes goodness, morality, and the ability to discern what is right and wrong. Without God, however, we have no ability to do this, any of these things, because all that is left is this physical experience where each individual chooses their own goodness, their own morality, and decides for themselves what is right and wrong. In other words, doing what is right in their own eyes. In the end, human sinfulness causes chaos. It causes chaos by seeking self and believing in self above all else. God puts an end to human sinfulness through his salvation and his judgment. Judgment against those who seek themselves. Salvation for those who seek him. What does this leave us with? It leaves us with this incredible hope. God exists. Not only does he exist, but he has spoken to us and he has revealed himself to us. He has given us a foundation not of sticks and stones, but of himself. No other foundation could compare. None which we could ever construct ourselves, nor any this world has to offer. This world, when followed through, only ever offers us chaos in our sinfulness. God, however, he provides order. So it comes full circle for us. Only in God can we find order and chaos? And now naturally, I think that this leads us to the gospel, right? I mean, I see the gospel. I don't know if you guys see the gospel here. 
I see the gospel. It's pretty clear. <laughs> um, but here's the thing about the gospel. It's all encompassing. It's not just um, the good news of Jesus coming, but it's also the good news about all of reality, that God exists and he tells us about his existence. And that means that we can understand things. And so it begins with what? It begins with existence itself. God the creator, the first cause of all the universe. He brought all of what we experience into existence. How incredible is that? And then what do we read in the scriptures? What's the last thing he creates? You and I. And what does he say about us? You bear his image. Nothing else in all of creation bears the image of God. But you and I do. How incredible. That means that we have the ability to love. The ability to reason, to understand, to seek God, to see his world and understand it. The ability to seek truth and follow it. That's great news. But what do we find in today's chapter too? Leviathan. Dark. Chaos. Sinfulness. Brokenness. Why does brokenness exist in our world? Because we are free to choose it. That is not a bad thing, freedom of choice. Because again, without freedom of choice, love is not possible. If I put a gun to your head and tell you to love me, guess what? That's not real love. But if you have the ability, the choice to love me, that's real love. So don't blame God for chaos. (laughs) Blame ourselves. We're the sinners. We choose ourselves above God. We choose to lie to each other, to steal, to murder, to hinder. And our society is just an example of this. Over and over and over again we see it. And it's dreadful. But it's worthy of judgment, isn't it? And as much as we want to say love just accepts everyone as they are, I've never experienced a love that truly does that well. No. Love transforms to bring out the best, not the worst. And so it is in our society, true love would encourage truth. True love would encourage the best. Unfortunately, too many in our society and societies for all of time, as long as humans from the tree onward, (laughs) we have seen nothing but sinfulness and brokenness within our societies. But then that's the problem. I like to do this. Ayana remembers this, and so does Aspen. (laughs) They do. And some of you might remember it too. Um, All right, so how many of you have lied? (laughs) How many of you have stolen? How many of you have murdered? You two should answer, raise your hands to this. What did Jesus say? If you hate in your heart your brother, you've murdered them. (laughs) Yep, that's right. Thank you, Aspen. (laughs) No. So we're guilty, aren't we? Individuals who make the choice are guilty. The question is, what can we do? Well, if you take someone who's just murdered someone and bring them to the judge and they say, well, I'm changed now, does that alleviate their guilt for the crime? No. Something must be done. So what does God do? Redemption. He sends his son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place. He who is perfect, without sin. He died for you and I, so that our guilt could be alleviated. He died in time, space, history, and flesh. So that we could find redemption. And you see that here. It's interesting in the New Testament, because the New Testament talks about chastisement. Do you guys ever notice that? And um, interestingly enough, it actually talks about chastisement with Jesus. That he would understand and he would know in his human form. It's very interesting. I think it's in Hebrews, by the way. Someone's going to look at it. I'm looking at Peter. He's going to look it up later. And he'll send me a message saying, ah, and then, <laughs> and then we'll discuss. Anyway, um, but no, he sends his son, Jesus Christ, to redeem us from our sins. So that way we could not only have our guilt alleviated, but then we can repent of our sin turn away from sinfulness and seek truth and live truth in this world and proclaim the truth to the world that we are not enough, God is enough, he destroys the serpent, not us. And that is the good news of the gospel. 
All of it. Good news has to have bad news. The bad news is we're all sinners. The good news is God did something about it through Jesus. He defeated death. And where does it lead? We see it. From the north to the south, he picks up each one of his own and he carefully brings them under his protection. Those who have faith in him, they're placed under his protection forever. (laughs) Washed in the blood of Christ. I don't know about any of you, but when I look at the society around us, every Christian has said this, right? (laughs) Every Christian has said, oh man, society's awful. It is. Um, That's why I just look so forward to the future. To the hope we have, not in ourselves, but in Christ. Because there's going to come a time when it's all done. And we look back and we say, you know what, that was a small thing we experienced there. Because eternity is a long time in comparison. And so we have hope. And it's not in us, but in Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for Isaiah. We thank you so much that you are the one who defeats Leviathan. You are the one who defeats chaos itself. And Lord, for those who are faithful, we actually see it in our own lives as we are faithful to you, we begin to experience order in the chaos. And it gives us hope. Because that means that you do exist. Your spirit is truly with us. And the peace that you give to us can never be taken away. And even if this society crumbles, in the end, we are assured, not because we are strong, but because you are. So Lord, we ask that you would continue to encourage us in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we would continue to cling to your word, and that we would always be faithful to you, to desire you above all else. Lord, this world is a harsh world, and it deceives us so easily. Let us not be deceived. We thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.